Gracious Father, as we open Your Word, I pray, Lord, that it would be Your voice that we would hear collectively, not mine. So fill my mouth with Your words that Jesus may be glorified, for we ask it in His name. Amen. In our children's story, we learn that 400 years ago, the pilgrims set foot in this very area, um, and, and that's how the Massachusetts Bay Colony uh, came into being, Plymouth Plantation and, and so forth, 400 years ago. A little over 59 years ago, on November 22nd, 1963, something else very memorable happened in America. Does anybody remember what happened 59 years ago? 59 years ago? At 11.37 a.m., Air Force One touched down at Love Field in Dallas, Texas. President Kennedy, Mrs. Kennedy, had spent the morning in nearby Fort Worth addressing the Chamber of Commerce. The president, along with his wife, Jacqueline, and Governor and Mrs. Connolly were riding in a limousine through the streets of Dallas, Texas. The Kennedys waved to the smiling faces that lined the streets as they drove by. Every, every street they traveled down, they were greeted warmly and affectionately. And Nellie Connolly turned to the president, and she said, Mr. President, no one can say that Dallas doesn't love and respect you. His answer was, as you sure can't, Mrs. Connolly. In the next moment, the unthinkable happened. In 1963, if you had predicted that the John F. Kennedy assassination would receive the attention that it does almost 60 years later, you would have been scoffed at. In fact, in 1963, at the end of the year, when William Manchester set out to write an account of the assassination, his literary agent warned him that by the time he finished the book, Americans may no longer be interested in John F. Kennedy. And yet, many Americans point to this pivotal moment in American history as a turning point, as a turning point. They believe that this one single act of aggression started a domino effect which led to the catastrophes of Vietnam, the social unrest of the 1960s, and the Watergate scandal. Now, we'll never know if that's true or not, but what we do know is, is that John F. Kennedy is still big news. Books, movies, auctions, conspiracies, John F. Kennedy is still in the news. Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis is still in the news. Camelot reigns in the memory of Americans. You know, Kennedy's assassination was an event that defined the collective memory of an entire generation of people. Almost everyone who was alive in 1963 remembers where they were when they heard the fateful news. In fact, you can't have a conversation with anybody who's old enough to remember without someone saying, where were you when you heard that the president had been assassinated? That single event defines the collective memory of a generation. Pearl Harbor had the same effect on an earlier generation. Later generations have been equally affected by the explosion of the Challenger, by the attacks of 9-11, 
and perhaps even the events of January 6th. And while we remember where were you when, I have a different question for you this morning. Are you ready? Where are you now? Where are you now? Where are you now? The leaves have already passed from green to to gold and red, and now they're turning brown and falling off the trees. The nights are getting colder. It's fall time in New England. It's a time of family, reunions, reminiscing, holidays, and happy times. All of these events intertwine to make up some of the happiest of my own childhood memories because the fall time is a time of family and togetherness. You know, unfortunately for many people, the holiday season is a time of sadness. It is a time when their loneliness becomes even more apparent. So many people have no one during the holidays, and others choose or won't be with other people. In 1974, uh, folk artist Harry Chapin sang a song that's very typical of this scenario. I asked Josh O'Donnell if I should sing the song, and he recommended that I not. Um, You know, I I can't do it justice, but I, I will share some of the lyrics with you. It's called Cats in the Cradle, um, and it's about a man and his son, which is really fitting uh, for a day in which we've had a baby dedication. The first stanza says, my child arrived the other day. He came into the world in the usual way, but there were planes to catch and bills to pay. He learned to walk while I was away. And he was talking for I knew it, and as he grew, he'd say, I'm going to be like you, Dad. You know I'm going to be like you, Dad. And then the chorus says, when you coming home, Dad, I don't know when, but we'll get together then. You know we'll have a good time then. The second stanza, <clears throat> my son turned 10 the other day. Kids grow up so fast, don't they? It just flies by. Cindy and I have five children. They're all adults now, and we have grandchildren, and we're watching them shoot up and grow up, and it goes by so quickly. My son turned 10 the other day. He said, thanks for the ball, Dad. Come on, let's play. Can you teach me to throw? I said, not today. I got a lot to do. He said, that's okay, and he walked away. His smile never dimmed. It said, I'm going to be like him. You know I'm going to be like him. Third stanza. He came from college just the other day. So much like a man, I had to say. Son, I'm proud of you. Can you sit for a while? He shook his head, and they said with a smile, what I'd really like, Dad, is to borrow the car keys. See you later. Can I have them, please? Fourth stanza. I've long since retired. My son's moved away. I called him up just the other day. I said, I'd like to see you if you don't mind. He said, I'd love to, Dad, if I can find the time. You see, my new job's a hassle and the kids have the flu, but it's sure nice talking to you, Dad. It's been sure nice talking to you. And as I hung up the phone, it occurred to me, he'd grown up to be just like me. My boy was just like me. 
Does that sound like your life? We have so much to do, don't we? We all live busy lives, work, school, business. We can't take time off. And we reassure ourselves that one day we will. One day we'll have more time. One day things will be less hectic. One day there will be less obligations. But too often, one day never comes. Many years ago, a young man was faced with a similar dilemma. And this morning, I want to tell you his story. But for you to understand the story, you're going to have to allow your mind to go to a different time and place. And so we are traveling back hundreds and thousands of years through the epochs of time, and we find ourselves in a prison. Now, this is no ordinary prison. It is the Mamertine prison in Rome. It is a place of confinement for political prisoners. As you approach the building, it's beautiful. It's ornate. But you walk into this grand lobby, and then you begin to proceed down a flight of stone steps, and then another. And then still another flight of stone steps. And finally, you reach the bottom, and a guard opens an iron gate, and you find yourselves in a subterranean prison. As you travel along this winding maze of passages, you finally come to a dead end, and there in the floor, you see a hole. It's a prison cell. Peering down into that dark hole, at first you can see nothing, but gradually as your eyes become accustomed to the darkness, you can make out the form of a man huddled beneath a thin blanket. He's trying to keep the cold, damp air off his aged body. His prison cell is woefully small, no bed, no bathroom, and we are overpowered by the stench. The only sound is the rattling of chains, a cough, a low moan. And yet we find ourselves drawn to this man. Who is he? What horrible crime has he committed that would would place him in these circumstances? At first, our questions are rebuffed, but persistence pays off. We learn that he is indeed a political prisoner, the leader of an anti-government cult. He is perhaps one of the most well-known men of his time, a world traveler who has received an audience in every city he's visited. He has spoken to common men as well as kings. He is accused of inciting a rebellion. He is said to be the mastermind behind the burning of the city of Rome. His name is Paul, and he refers to himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. This is the end of the road for Paul, and he knows it. The political sympathies of the Roman government are decidedly anti-Christian. Nero has scapegoated them. And there are other indications that Paul's life is drawing to a close. The Judaizers are pressing in upon him even more viciously. Even more viciously. So he is being attacked not only from without, but from within. Second, Burrus is dead. Now, you may not have ever heard of Burrus, but during Paul's day, Burrus was the leader of the Praetorian Guard, the equivalent of our chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Burrus was a Christian baptized by Paul, 
a convert of Paul's, and he was very loyal to Paul. But Burrus had died, and his death brought an end to the protection that Paul had experienced for some years. And so as Paul is faced with the uncertainty of life, as he is faced with the prospect of his imminent death, he thinks of one person, one person. If you were faced with imminent death, who would you think of? What person would you think of? Paul thinks of Timothy. Timothy is like a son to the aged, toil-worn apostle. Timothy has been his avid supporter, helper, source of comfort. Is it any wonder that Paul thinks of Timothy? More than anything, Paul wants to see Timothy. But Timothy is in Ephesus on the other side of the Mediterranean Sea. Paul thinks, if I could only see Timothy before I die. That's my last and only wish, if I could only see Timothy. Paul felt sure if Timothy knew the circumstances that he was facing, that Timothy would come. And so as Paul sat huddled in that prison pit, he wrote a letter to Timothy. I have a copy of that letter in front of me today, but you probably do too. It's 2 Timothy. It's the last known letter of the Apostle Paul. It is a letter of instruction and encouragement. Today I want to invite you to listen to the words in the fourth chapter of this epistle. 2 Timothy chapter 4, we're going to start with verse 6. 2 Timothy 4, verse 6. Paul writes, For I am now ready to be offered up, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, There is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them that love is appearing. Isn't that good news? A crown of righteousness, not just for Paul, but for every one of us who are looking for his appearing. As Seventh-day Adventists, we believe in the Advent. We believe in the second coming. We're longing to see Jesus appear in the clouds. So this is for us. Let's read on. Verse 9, Paul says, Do thy diligence to come shortly unto me. For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed unto Thessalonica, Crescens to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me, and Mark. Take Mark and bring him with you, for he is profitable to me for ministry. Tychicus have I sent to Ephesus. The cloak that I left at Troas with Carpus, when you come, bring it with you. And the books, but especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. The Lord reward him according to his works. Of whom be thou also wary, for he has greatly withstood our words. At my first answer, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. I pray that God may not lay that to their charge. And now notice verse 21. Paul writes, Do thy diligence 
to come before winter. Do thy diligence to come before winter. Do your best to come before winter. Why does Paul say that? Earlier he said, come shortly, come quickly. Why not just repeat that? Why does he say, come before winter? Remember, Paul wants to see Timothy before he dies. He realizes that Nero is unpredictable and that he could have him killed at any time. And so there is a sense of urgency to Timothy's visit. But why come before winter? Paul is reminding Timothy of the conditions of the Mediterranean Sea in the winter. During the winter, the Mediterranean is often unnavigable. It is so rough. And I can attest to that. Cindy and I were sailing on the Mediterranean a few years ago as part of a a church group. And uh, we were going from Italy, and we were on our way to Turkey and Ephesus, the very route that Paul was, was encouraging Timothy to take. And the, uh, about the second day into our trip, the seas were so rough that we both got seasick. We both got seasick. And this was a, a giant ocean-going vessel, uh, not the small little ships they had in, in Paul's day. And so I can understand what, what Paul is talking about. Not even the bravest ship captains during Paul's day would set sail on the Mediterranean in the wintertime. And Paul knows that if Timothy does not come in the fall of the year, he will be unable to book passage until the next spring. And Paul thinks that that will likely be too late. And so he sends the letter, and he lies in the prison pit waiting for Timothy to come. Each time the guard brings Paul food, he looks up at the opening, hoping to see the face of Timothy. Each time Luke comes to learn more of the stories of Paul's journeys and, and, and record the book of Acts, he looks up hoping to see the face of Timothy. But guess what? We don't know how the story ends because it's Paul's last known letter. We don't know whether Timothy got there or not. Therefore, there are two possible endings to this story. Possible ending number one. In the fall of the year, Tychicus arrives in Ephesus to deliver a letter to Timothy and to take up Timothy's pastoral duties while he is gone. Upon reading the letter, Timothy hurries up the coast to Troas to collect Paul's cloak and parchments, heads back down the coast to the major shipping port, of Miletus, where he books passage on a fast ship for Italy. He sails past Greece, around the boot of Italy, up onto the east side uh, or the west side of of the uh, boot of Italy, where he lands in Puteoli, Italy. He hurries up the famous Appian Way and into the city of Rome. When Timothy arrives in Rome, he is met by Claudius, who leads him to the Mamertine prison. A guard leads Timothy through the maze of passages that we just walked down. And finally, Paul is able to see Timothy. They embrace. Timothy gives Paul the parchments. He wraps the cloak around his cold shoulders. He comforts Paul. He spends time with Paul. And finally, when the day comes, he walks with Paul as he is led out into the woods outside of the city gates to be executed. That's possible ending number one. 
Now let's consider possible ending number two. Upon receiving the letter from Tychicus, Timothy feels obligated to orient Tychicus. Tychicus is going to be replacing him as pastor of Ephesus. He shows Tychicus around town, introduces him to some of his Bible study interests, some of the elders and leaders in the community, and then Timothy feels obligated to finish some personal business. This takes quite a bit more time than Timothy expected, but he consoles himself with the thought that by tomorrow he should have everything wrapped up and he will be able to set sail to see Paul. Tomorrow, unfortunately, doesn't come for several weeks. Next, Timothy goes up the coast to Troas. He collects Paul's cloak and parchments. But while there, he runs into some friends who insist on throwing a going-away party for him. Several more days lapse. Timothy then goes back down to the shipping port of Miletus. In Miletus, Timothy is horrified to discover that no more ships will be setting sail this season. They are predicting an early winter. So he runs even further south to the port of Cus, hoping that he can find a brave ship captain who will sail him across the Mediterranean. Unfortunately, he finds the same situation. No ships will be sailing out of the port of Cus. Timothy is therefore forced to spend the winter in Ephesus. He consoles himself with the thought that he could not have been slack with his business affairs. What would have happened to the Bible study interests if he hadn't introduced them to Tychicus? The first thing, the next spring, Timothy finds a fast ship, and he books passage for Italy. He sails past Greece, around the boot of Italy, past the Isle of Sicily, and into the port of Puteoli. He hurries up the Appian Way and into Rome, but Claudius is not there to greet him, or Luke, or even Eubulus. He is forced to find the prison on his own. Finally locating the prison, he encounters a jailer and asks the jailer to take him to the prison pit of Paul of Tarsus. Who? The jailer asks. Paul of Tarsus, the servant of Jesus Christ. The jailer says, oh, I'm sorry, son. You're too late. He's already been executed. You know, winter is approaching. Winter is approaching for each of us. Time goes by, we get older, and winter is approaching. Do you have a friend, a loved one, a family member this morning who doesn't know how much you care about them? Do your children know how special they are to you? Do your parents know how special they are to you? Do you have a a member of your church family? Maybe something has passed between the two of you. You used to be really close, and now there's a distance between you. Feelings were hurt. Things have, have been left unsaid, or maybe they were said in haste. Remember that winter is approaching. Winter is approaching. Perhaps... There's someone else in your life that you're having conflict with. Maybe it's a sibling. Maybe it's a coworker. Settle your differences before winter. Those who like to reminisce about JFK asks, where were you when? Where were you when? Today, I want you to remember the more significant question. Where are you now?
Where are you now? And where will you be when Jesus comes? Paul says there's a laid up a crown of life for all those who are looking for His appearing. Are you doing that today? Have you made that choice? Have you made that claim in your life? Where will you be when your life ends? Where will you stand with your family, with your friends, and with your children? Even more importantly, where will you stand with Jesus when that day comes? The only way we will know where we are then is to know where we are right now. So where are you now? That's no trivial question. Where are you right now? Jesus wants you to come to Him. He doesn't care how far you've strayed. Your past is irrelevant. He doesn't care what you've done. He only cares where He can take you. He only cares about the changes that you'll allow Him to make in your life. He just wants you to come to Him. Come before it's too late. Come to a right relationship with Him. Right relationships with Jesus are often indicative of the relationships we have with other people. You know, Jesus said that we have to love God and we have to love others. You can't separate them. You can't separate them. And so He's calling us today, at this moment, He wants you to open your heart and your life and come to Him before winter. Where were you when? It really doesn't matter. Where are you now? Where are you now? Come before winter.